Hello and welcome to the CSF Rheumatology Author Interview Podcast. My name is Professor Peter Nash from the Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane. Um, we're very fortunate today to be joined by Dr. Stanley Cohen from the Southwestern Medical School in Dallas. Stanley, thank you so much. We appreciate how busy this time is for you with ULA and presentations and everything else going on. So we greatly appreciate your time. Today we're going to discuss a phase two study recently published that's looking at a BTK inhibitor, fenobrutinib. And uh, I wonder if you just uh, say hi, Stanley, and, and what your background is a little and what your interests are and what you've been doing. Sure. Well, good to be here, Peter. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm a rheumatologist in uh, Dallas, Texas. I've only been doing this now for 42 years. And I've uh, been a clinical trialist uh, for many years, as, as, as you have been as well, and been involved in uh, pretty much the development of all the new therapies we have for inflammatory arthritis over the last uh, 30 years. Uh, so I uh, appreciate the opportunity to talk about this particular uh, study uh, that we were involved in. Excellent. And we've had some experience with the BDK inhibitor, the Lilly drug, which was a little different to fenobrutinib. Can you just give us a touch on the background of fenobrutin itself and in inhibiting BTK? Yeah, so, you know, BTK is first certainly a very attractive target in our diseases uh, because the uh, stimulation of B cells through the B cell receptor and also the FC receptor in myeloid cells uh, uses uh, uh, BTK, uh, one of the intracellular tyrosine kinases, to facilitate signal transduction from the cell surface uh, to the nucleus for the, the various homeostatic mechanisms and activation of B cells and uh, monocytes and macrophages. So, in sense, we thought it would be an excellent target to, to go after. This is a highly specific BTK inhibitor, a very little off-target kinase inhibition. Uh, it's reversible inhibition. There's, some are irreversible, some are reversible. This is reversible. It's non-covalent binding. So in speaking to the, the basic folks, I can't really get a good answer why one might be better than the other. But this does differ from some of the other uh, molecules. Uh, and to my knowledge so far is really the only BTK inhibitor in a phase two study that's had a positive study in our diseases. And uh, whether that's uh, intrinsic to the molecule or uh, wonderful luck uh, remains to be seen. Uh, you know, in data that hasn't been uh, published, the long-term extension protocol, that data is coming is to, to fruition now. It looks like the majority of the patients stayed on drug and did well. So that's a, to me, a pretty positive finding. But uh, it, the molecule does differ from other molecules and and maybe there is something unique here. The, the, the doses picked uh, were based on uh, uh, PD studies, pharmacodynamic studies, and PK studies, and healthy volunteers, and uh, had in, at least a 70% in, in, in inhibitory capacity of BTK in those uh, healthy volunteers. So I think the right dose was used. It doesn't seem like a higher dose would be more effective. And uh, so again, uh, there may be something unique to this molecule. Yeah, and because as you said, that it was the covalent binding irreversible drug that we, we were involved with, it didn't seem to stack right. up very well. Um, is this liver metabolized, renally excreted as an oral small molecule? Do you recall just how it's, how it's uh, gotten rid of? You know, I, I don't actually recall, uh, Peter. I'd have to, to look that up. No worries, no worries at all. I don't um, recall that there was really any significant prohibition, if, you know, for renal disease, uh, certainly if you have significant liver disease, you can participate in the study. 
sure, sure. And I thought it was a very clever design to have two cohorts, the MTXIR and the TNFIR in the same, the same study with an active comparator. You want to tell us a bit about how you set that study up? Right. So, uh, you know, clearly we're looking, this was really more of a hypothesis generating study. Uh, so it was powered to, to do that. And we looked at uh, the typical methotrexate incomplete responders and did the typical phase two dose ranging study, looking at uh, 50 milligrams, 150 milligrams once daily, and the 200 milligrams twice daily, compared to adalimumab. And adalimumab uh, was an active comparator, and the study was powered to look at a difference in ACR50 response, which I actually suggested not to be done when this study was being designed, but uh, they went ahead and did it anyway. And then the second study was just a typical smaller study looking at uh, TNFIR patients, predominantly a single TNF uh, agent, uh, but uh, compared to placebo uh, in patients with active uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And um, uh, basically uh, what they uh, demonstrated uh, was for the two higher doses as expected based on the PKPD, two higher doses, the BTK inhibitor, uh, fenobrutinib, were superior to placebo um, in the methotrexate incomplete responder patients. And the higher dose, 200 milligrams BID, was superior to placebo, and the primary endpoint being the ACR50 response at week 12. And so, uh, again, the, both achieved statistical difference. Now, compared to adalimumab, uh, it did not achieve statistical difference. It was comparable, um, which was uh, you know, very interesting to me, and I thought exciting. Others were less excited because you're looking at a new therapy, and yet you couldn't... Uh, beat uh, one of our time-honored uh, therapies. Uh, but <coughs> to me, is really not the question. I think we have 15 therapies now of biologics, targeted synthetic DMARDs available in RA, uh, but we still have patients who cycle through multiple therapies, continue to have active disease. So we're just looking for something else that uh, might work in the, generally the biologic or TNFIR population, um, and this potentially could uh, be one of the things that we could utilize. And uh, I think, as you say, the comparability is important. Many of the agents uh, know better. So then the safety becomes very important. Can you tell us a little bit about the safety side? Well, th there were no really unusual safety signals um, uh, compared to our biologic therapies. Uh, there were a few scattered uh, serious infections, a couple of pneumonias, pyelonephritis, cellulitis, uh, slight trend in dose. There were a few uh, transaminitis noted, uh, similar to what we've seen with other kinase inhibitors, but uh, uh, very manageable. One case of zoster seen. A small study, limited duration, so it's hard to be really dogmatic about the safety, but there was nothing here that looked to be a deal breaker. Really didn't see anything with lipids. Uh, didn't see anything as far as leukopenia, neutropenia that was of a concern. Uh, we did look at biomarkers, and there was uh, a reduction in uh, IgG and IgM levels in patients on the higher doses, uh, dose-dependent uh, fashion, uh, modest reduction in rheumatoid uh, factor activity. And I think uh, that's something that will need to be monitored uh, if this uh, you know, molecule moves forward in further studies with more longer duration, what impact will it have on immunobodies? Because you did enrich the patient population for seropositivity. And it was right. nice to see those markers come down. Can you give us a sneak preview of the open label extension, whether any of them got hypogammaglobulinemia down the road or? 
there were some, you know, again, uh, this is the data is not in the public domain. I, it's, look, I probably talk a little bit. Uh, it was not a significant clinical issue. Okay. And so we can't comment on seronegative patients at this stage, but maybe yeah. you look at that later. Yeah, I think um, it'll be looked at uh, later. They, you know, we just, uh, and again, this is, uh, as you well know, from the work that you've done, uh, this was proof of concept. Uh, can we see a signal that we can now go to our bosses in pharma and say we have something we think is worth developing and we want to move into phase three? Excellent. And do you think it will proceed? Do you think you had enough results to move forward? Because uh, uh, 12 weeks is with uh, um, antibodies that live for three months. You, I would suggest in the next three months, you're going to see the best effect of this drug. Right. Again, it's the slow-acting therapy. We've seen that with rituximab. We've seen that with belimumab. These B-cell uh, inhibitory therapies take longer uh, to work. Uh, so the answer is uh, those discussions are ongoing. Uh, I can't give you a definitive answer. Uh, we really push for them to continue. We, you know, uh, RA is a crowded field as far as therapies now, but we still need new therapies. Uh, we don't need another drug for methotrexate incomplete responders, uh, but we do need uh, medications for patients who fail biologics or target synthetic DMARDs. So I'm cautiously optimistic. Okay, and take home message for the clinician from this study. Is it a good target, do you think, and it's going to offer some advantage? I think it's, it, it is a good target uh, based on uh, it's uh, uh, being found in hematopoietic cells, that are involved in the synovium and the inflammatory process. Um, pleased by the results of the phase two study. Uh, somewhat surprised, but pleased. And uh, I do think that it would be a shame not to pursue further investigation uh, in our field in rheumatoid arthritis. And if successful there, you could think of possibly even other diseases that might be useful. Yeah, you think lupus would be a good target. Um, and no imaging in this study, but you weren't tempted to MRI a couple of patients and see what happened to their synovitis. So Peter, I'm sorry, you, you broke up a little bit. Can you repeat that question? Sorry, no imaging in this study. You weren't tempted to MRI a couple of people and see what happened to the synovitis. I mean, we might've been tempted, but that was uh, <laughs> from the beginning. But that's certainly something will have to be looked at. I'm one of the folks who's on uh, one side of the uh, pendulum. I don't think we need x-ray studies anymore to spend all that money to see a change in a shark score of 0.4 or 0.2. Uh, I do think that a subset study with MRI showing changes in osteitis, uh, bone edema, um, synovitis would be helpful to make us feel comfortable that it's disease modifying. Uh, but, you know, like most sponsors, uh, if the phase three study moves forward, there will be an x-ray portion. Right, so we can see lots of, uh, lots of future use for a oral small molecule rituximab, if you like, in all kinds of different situations. So we congratulate you on that. Yeah. Keep going. I certainly think that's the case. Yeah. yeah, so we hope the bean counters don't ditch it because it was comparable and not superior. We'd like to thank you for your time. Um, this has been the CSF Author Interview Podcast. If you'd like to know more about this paper and others uploaded to the CSF website this month, detailed slide sets are available in the publication section at cytokinesignaling.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from and let us know what you think. 
And we thank you very much for your time. Early, short-term phase two study. Look forward to uh, what comes next. If the bean counters let it go ahead. Thank you very much for your time, Stanley. Thanks, Peter. Good talking to you. Thank <laughs> you.